we looked at giving, we'll look at fasting next week, and today we look at a very, very famous passage on prayer, on prayer. So three, three things we're going to look at today, the heart of prayer, the pattern of prayer, and the forgiven prayer, the person who does the prayer. You're welcome. They're not all going to be winners, okay? The heart of prayer, the pattern of prayer, and the forgiven prayer. So let's look at uh, verse 5 together. And when you pray... Christian, people of the kingdom. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so as, as with last week, as with giving, we see Jesus is kind of continuing to show how are we meant to behave When you do devoted things, when you practice spiritual disciplines, when you do the things the scriptures call you to do, how are you meant to do them? What is the heart position you are meant to have as you do them? And one of the things Jesus is going to do continually is contrast us, Christians, the people of the kingdom, with the hypocrites, with the Gentiles, the people of the world, the people not of the kingdom. So let's look first, how do the hypocrites, the people of the world, behave? The people we're not supposed to be like, how do they behave? Look at verse 5 again. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their rewards. So the hypocrites are doing the same thing that you and I are called to do. They're praying, right? They're doing the thing we're supposed to do, but what's their motivation? What is their motivation in doing it? They long for the praise of man. They long for the world to see and look as they stand in the most public places, as they stand in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why do they do that? Jesus says, so that they will be seen by others. They want their righteous act seen by others and praised by others, by man. And Jesus says, they get what they want, right? They have received the reward that they're after. And so the question for us is, why is that bad? Why is that so bad? To, to pray in public, to receive the praise of man, you know, we have a couple answers. You know, it's prideful, of course, yes, it's sinful, because you're trying to fill yourself with pride, look how great I am. Uh, obviously, they're not doing it for God, yes, but then as Tim also highlighted last week, one of the reasons why it's foolish is that the praise of man is fleeting, it's empty, and it's enslaving. It will never satisfy you. You always want more, and it will actually imprison you. You'll always need more in order for you to feel, feel fulfilled, filled up by the praise of man. And so Jesus, knowing this, says, don't be like them. Don't be like them who pray for man that will enslave you. Instead, what does Jesus say we should be like? Look at verse 6. If we're not going to be like them, what should we be like when we pray. Verse 6, but when you pray, 
Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. Jesus says, instead of going to the most public place, go to the most private place. Go in your room, shut the door even, prevent anyone from being able to look in. Instead of doing it before a private audience, do it in secret before one, an audience of one, your father. Instead of doing it so that man will see and that man will reward you, do it so that you'll be seen only by your father and that your father will reward you. Uh, There's so much here. Okay, I don't even know where to start. So Jesus is not just giving you here helpful prayer tips. You know that? I mean, we, we all, I think it's, it's helpful to acknowledge the safe place. Everybody in this room, I would imagine, right now you're thinking, I don't pray as much as I should. And you're already thinking, okay, Jared's going to give us a sermon about prayer. I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to go try to pray. It will last a week or two, and then I'll stumble, right? And then I'll feel guilty again until the next prayer sermon. That's our typical, you know, cycle. Jesus here isn't just giving you some nice tips to try and help that process. Rather, what Jesus is getting at here is the very heart of why you should be a Christian. At the very heart of your Christian devotion, you were redeemed. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God. We'll see that in a second when we look at the Lord's Prayer itself and enjoy him forever. To glorify him and enjoy him, him, not just the things that he might give you, although you can enjoy those as well, but enjoy him. You were made for fellowship with your heavenly father, and Jesus came to restore that fellowship when we lost it by being kicked out of the garden. That's also, by the way, when Jesus gives one of his most explicit statements on what you'll be doing for all of eternity, this is what he says, uh, John 17, 3. This is the eternal life, that they may know you, may have fellowship with you, may commune with you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You were made for communion, for fellowship with your Father. Therefore, his reward His praise, this thing Jesus is telling you to go after and seek above all other things should be what your devotion is for. His reward alone should be the motivation of your prayers because, as we'll see, we saw last week, we'll see this week, and we'll see next week, his reward is infinitely greater than the cheap, cheap praise of man, primarily because his reward is himself. Tim gave an excellent uh, analogy last week where he said, you don't get married because of the stuff that results from marriage, right? Kids, dual incomes, for some of us, Uh, Tim, uh, right? You don't get married just for the good stuff that comes. Why do you get married? You get married for your spouse, right? You get married because you want them. You want to know them. That's the whole point in marriage. And Christianity, uh, similarly, is not primarily about the things you get from God, although he's a good God who blesses us with very good things, but it's because you get God. You get your Father. You get to be called a child of the living God. You get your Savior. Jesus isn't just a king who you can write letters to and ask requests for. He's someone that you know and that you can fellowship with for all of eternity. And similarly, prayer isn't primarily about the things you get from God. It's you get 
God. You get to commune with God in prayer, with your Father who is in secret, with the door shut, and no one else can look in and see. The psalmists, if you read the psalms, as I'm imagining, you know, everybody who didn't make it through numbers, you've been in the psalms for the rest of the year, it's a good thing. Don't just read the psalms to stir your affections. Look at how the psalmists pray to God. Look at how they approach their God. God puts those prayers in the Bible to teach you how to pray. So let's look at a few. How did the psalmists talk about their God? Psalm 73, verse 25 Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you, not the things that you might give me, right? You, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice that last line. Your portion from God isn't stuff he gives you. He is your portion. He is your greatest Desire, communion with him. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. There's a sense in which uh, this, this sort of reality of fellowship with God, the reward of prayer is that you can pray that it's possible to pray, that you have the privilege of praying. We have it so many times exactly backwards. God wants us to pray. We're not very good at it. So we try, and maybe he's disappointed us with us, or he's thanks for doing actually really good, because we've hit a, you know, we, we just finished season two of The Chosen, and so we're just killing it for a while, right? The reality is you have the privilege of praying. You have the invitation to pray to the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. When you grasp that, prayer will completely flip in your mind to go from the spiritual discipline that you're not good at, that you often fail at, to an unthinkable privilege that you want to sprint into your room to receive from your loving Father who is in secret. And so the question for us is, which way do we view prayer? Are we living in line with this reality? Is Christianity just kind of waking up, not going to hell today because I accepted Jesus, and then you just crank through some tasks? Or is it this reality of the God of the universe is my Father who longs for me to come and know him and commune with him and fellowship with him, that I might sit at his table, if you will, and delight in him alone? Living in that reality, we won't even have to talk about how worthless man's praise is. It will just dwindle. It will turn to ash in front of you as you see the infinitely better reward of your Father. Drink this in. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. You are a child of the Father. Claudia, my wife, is from Norway, and it's uh, very cloudy, and it snows a lot, and it rains a lot, and they get a two to three days of sun, you know, their whole lives. Uh, and so when she moved here to the great, you know, nation of Texas, uh, one of the things I noticed as we got married, if it's sunny, if it's sunny and not a billion degrees, uh, she will walk outside and just do this. She'll just close her eyes and smile, and she's literally like absorbing the sun, right? Because she's been deprived of it for her whole life and then moved here and she just can get so much. She's just basking in the rays of the sun and enjoying it as it 
warms her, right? And then she runs inside for some air conditioning, right? Another gift from the Lord. Do you do that with this reality from God? Do you drink in that the God who said, let there be light and there was light, calls you his child and beckons you away from the street corner, away from the synagogue to the secret place to know him and to reward you with a reward that only he can give. Do you drink in this reality that that is what you have been saved into, fellowship with the living God? As my, as my Scottish friend, Robert Murray McShane, would say, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Be like Claudia with the sun, but with the reality of your father's love. Let his all-seeing eye settle on you in love so that you might long for the secret place, that a discipline, a duty might become a delight in your heart. That is why you have been brought in to know the God of all joy, that your affections might be rewired, that you would sprint to the secret place because you know the infinite joy that's there, the reward that only he can give you. We sing one of my favorite lines from a hymn we sing often. Uh, I, I, we sing it so often, I often wonder, do we believe it? Is uh, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure Thou art. Do you view prayer that way? Go, drink deeply of the reward of your Father that is in the secret place that is infinitely better than the cheap reward of man that is no reward at all. It's shackles. Go to your Father who is in secret. Jesus compels us. Don't be like the hypocrites who foolishly chase after something that's only going to kill them. Go in secret and drink in deeply from your father. We're two verses in. I realize we're, uh, let's, let's keep moving. Uh, Jesus isn't done here. Verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so we see another comparison. Gentiles now and the people of the kingdom, Gentiles and you, Christians, uh, same thing. People of the world, people who don't know God, how do they pray versus how should you pray? And so the Gentiles, a little background, uh, they would pray these big, long prayers and fill them with spiritual words uh, for two reasons. One, to kind of impress the gods, but then the primarily to get the gods to hear them. That's exactly what Jesus says. They think they're going to be heard because of their many words. That's how they behave. Jesus says, don't do that. Rather, how should you behave? Why should you not behave like them? What does Jesus say? Your father, the God who hears you, the God who you don't have to grab his attention, he already knows what you need before you pray it. He already knows what you need before you even ask. I think there's two things we often do in prayer that this points out. One, as I mentioned before, when we go to pray, I think the first thing that pops into our head is guilt. I haven't been praying enough. And so we heap up empty holy phrases. I think what we do is we think, how would a godly person pray? 
how would a godly person approach this God who's mad at me, a not godly, prayerless person? And so I'll just say the things a godly person would say. And so you spend all your time, you know, throwing up vows and vines and stuff like that. And you try and jam some scripture in there because maybe God will like that more and different things like that. And so you just imagine he's already mad at me. What are some spiritual things I can say in order to kind of gain his favor back? I think that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is go into the place of prayer, again, assuming God is far off. He's uninterested. He's busy, you know, focusing on more important things like preventing war or whatever. And, you know, I guess he can give you some of his time if you pray hard enough. So again, we heap up empty phrases in order to grab God's attention. And again, Jesus is contrasting both of these things. Don't do that. Number one, you don't need to heap up these kind of empty, holy phrases uh, because your father, again, uh, already knows what you need. Again, look at the psalmist. When they feel like God is far away, what do they say? Do they say, God, I know theologically, because we're good Calvinists, you're sovereign over all things, and so therefore uh, you see this, but it really feels like you're really absent. No, what do they say? Don't hide your face from me. Don't cast me off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation, right? I had a professor who said the psalmists are so convinced uh, that God is going to answer their prayers that when he doesn't, they let him have it, right? You see, and again, who puts the psalms in the Bible? God to say, pray like this. You're frustrated, come pour out your soul. Yes, don't lay your theology on the side, but just pour out your soul to your father. He doesn't want a fake version of you that he knows you. He knows you better than anybody. So just go pour out your soul and let the spirit minister to you. Let him correct your wrong thinking as you pour out your soul. Don't heap up these ridiculous empty phrases. Again, remember who your God is. And then secondly, don't try and grab God's attention as if he's far off and not paying attention. That is exactly backwards. What do the scriptures scream about the God that you pray to? He has seen you from before he said, let there be light, Ephesians 1. He knows the number of hairs on your head, Luke 12. He knit you together in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. He sees your tossings when you can't sleep. And you're rolling around in your bed. God sees that. He knows the number of tears that have come out of your eyes. He keeps them in his bottle, Psalm 56 tells us. And he is the one who draws you to Jesus in the first place. There has never been a millisecond that his focus has not been on you. We are not the one that needs to grab his attention. It's the other way around. He is the one constantly trying to grab ours And so Jesus says, don't do this weird performance thing. Remember who your God is. Remember the one that you're talking to. He knows what you're going to ask before the thought is formed in your head and before the prayer exits your lips. He knows all your sorrow and your pain. He knows your struggles and he knows what you need even when you don't know what you need. Go pour out your heart before a father who knows you and loves you. Don't pretend he's some sort of wicked God of the Canaanites who's far off and needs a bunch of sacrifices just to gain his attention. You have it. He doesn't have yours. Go pray to the God of the Bible and don't forget that he is the God of the Bible. That's Jesus' point. 
Don't forget who it is that you're praying to. So that's the heart of prayer. Know who you are. Know that you are children of the Father, your children of the kingdom. Know who it is that you're praying to, your Father who sees you, your Father who knows what you need before you even ask him, and know what you've been saved to live for, communion with the God of all joy, to drink in his reward. That's the heart position as we go into prayer. Now, next, the very famous Lord's Prayer. What's the pattern of prayer that Jesus is going to give us? Verse 9. Pray then like this. So don't don't pray like the hypocrites. How should we pray? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus isn't just going to say, you know, don't do the bad thing. Don't be like the bad guys. He's going to say, okay, like a good shepherd, he's not just going to say, don't do that. He's going to say, here's what you should do. Here's a pattern of prayer. Let's walk through this very famous uh, pattern of prayer. Here's how children of God should pray to their father. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You pray those first two words to your father. We've just spent a whole bunch of time talking about this. We'll talk about it a little bit more because it might be the most life-changing thing you could ever grasp. You call God your Father, and it's not just a nice analogy to make you feel warmer towards God. Rather, it is the greatest privilege of the gospel. God sends his eternal Son, the one who's always called him Father, sends his Son to die in your place so that you might become sons and daughters. You might call him Father, J.I. Packer, the great uh, theologian, says this, adoption, that we've been adopted uh, as, as a child of the Father, is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be declared innocent, to be declared justified, that's a great thing. We're Protestant after all, right? To be right with the God, God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Again, the scriptures scream this as your highest privilege of the gospel. Galatians 4, 3 through 7, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we used to be children of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so that we we are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Or 1 John 3, 1, see with what kind of love The Father has given to us. The Father wants to love you. God wants to love you. What kind of love is he going to give to you? According to John 3, see with what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not just a nice analogy that makes you smile a bit when you think about God. And so we are. It's the highest privilege of the gospel. I'll say all that to say, When you pray and you just say, Father, don't move past that word 
until you've grasped it, until you grasp what you are saying. The God of the universe is your Father. That's the foundation of this entire prayer. We pray as children to our Father who longs to hear from his children. So that's the foundation. What's the first thing we actually pray? We're going to see that as the foundation. We're children praying to the Father, and then we're going to see throughout this prayer several things that we ask, several uh, petitions, if you will. So what's the first thing that we ask? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, just another way of saying, let your name be kept holy. Let your name be revered in all the earth. Let your name be made glorious. The first thing that we ask for is the reason why we exist, right? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're praying for God to make his name great. We're praying for the reason everyone exists, to praise his great glory. And we're praying for God's ultimate goal, that his name would be glorified in all of the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will come a day when history ends, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses and his name is made glorious in the entire earth. That's the first thing you pray, God's ultimate goal. And since we're saying, Father, in, in everything else that I'm going to ask throughout this prayer, make your name glorious. Make your name glorious in everything else that I'm about to ask. And uh, John Piper gives a great analogy for, for what you're actually asking here. Making his name hallowed, glorious, isn't like a, a microscope that makes small things bigger. It's rather like a telescope that makes unthinkably big things brought into view. Notice in Habakkuk 2, it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's not like God gets more glory or somehow is more glorious. It's just that we, people whose eyes are often down, finally recognize the unthinkable glory of our God. It's not like a microscope that makes small things bigger. It's a telescope that we can actually begin to grasp his incredible glory. So that's the first thing we pray that his name be made glorious, that our eyes be opened to his glory. What's the second and the third thing we pray? Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing we pray for is his glory. The second thing we pray for is his mission, in a sense. Uh, what has been the main theme we've seen throughout this entire book is the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here as the king of the universe, bringing this kingdom of God of justice and peace and love that will bring peace to the whole earth. It's coming as Jesus comes. And so we pray for that. Your kingdom come and with it, your will be done. Perfect obedience, perfect loving obedience, joyful obedience. As your kingdom fills the earth, let those who enter into the kingdom perfectly obey you on earth as it is in heaven. There's perfect obedience in heaven. No one disobeys God in heaven. Let it be so here on the earth. Let your will be done. And we have perfect obedience as your kingdom spreads throughout the entire earth. So you see this progression. Align yourself in your prayer. Pray for God's ultimate goal, his glorious name, filling the earth. Pray for his mission, the kingdom, filling the earth, and with it, perfect obedience. And then now in verse 11, we're going to see a transition. We've been praying for macro things, if you will, and now there's actually going to be a shift to us praying for personal things, personal asks. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, 
Give us this day our daily bread. What are we praying for? The first thing we ask for is provision. Provision from the good shepherd, right? We uh, often breeze by this. If you, if you do pray through the Lord's Prayer, I think this and the last one are the two things that we skip the most because our fridges are full. Our pantries are often full. We've got Costco, right? We've got a year's worth of hot dog buns. One purchase away, right? And that's your only option. We want 12 hot dogs? Too bad. You get 5,000 hot dogs. Welcome to Costco, right? Uh, provision, daily provision in particular, is difficult for us to grasp. Not that we think, you know, we don't need to rely on God, but it is difficult to, to grasp uh, a lot of the times because it isn't a daily reality for us. It isn't a daily uh, need. We don't have to beg for daily bread because we don't have any waiting for us to, you know, feed us at breakfast when we're done with this quiet time in the morning. Yet, this prayer reminds you of ultimate reality, that the food sitting in your pantry and the milk in your fridge or whatever you drink in your fridge has come from his divine hand, that the breath in your lungs and the heartbeat that allows you to go to work and earn a paycheck is from his divine hand. This prayer reminds us of our constant dependence on him minute by minute. Just because, we often don't think of it, doesn't mean the good shepherd isn't the one leading us to the green pastures. It's a continual reminder that even the breath in our lungs is from him. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, don't forget to ask. Don't forget that you are a dependent being on your Father for everything that comes your way. And so because you are, don't miss the second part, ask. Ask your Father. Again, I think... We often are really scared of the prosperity gospel, as we should be. Boo, prosperity gospel. I want to get that on record. But oftentimes when we pray, I've got to get a lot of things on record. Uh, prosperity gospel, bad. Um, so when we pray for ourselves, especially if we're extra godly, we often feel like, uh, you know, I should pray. Let your kingdom come, right? You focus on God's stuff. Don't worry about little old me. And again, Jesus is saying, that's misunderstanding who your father is. The thing that we see most often repeated throughout the Gospels when it comes to prayer is, ask, ask me. I am a father who longs, delights in his children asking. Jesus gives a parable in uh, Luke 18 of an annoying widow who goes to this unjust judge for justice, and she keeps annoying him until he finally says, fine, just because you're persistent and I want you away from me, I'll give you justice. And Jesus, of course, says, how much more your heavenly father who loves you, right? Jesus is saying, annoy God with your prayers. He loves it. Don't swing the pendulum. He doesn't want your primary relationship to him to be just asking for things. Then he just becomes a divine butler. But as your father, what father in this room doesn't love your little kids, maybe your older kids, they're like 30 and they're still asking you for an allowance. You wouldn't love that. But your little kids, right? Who doesn't love your kids coming just asking you for things? What parent doesn't delight in giving them something that they're going to enjoy? As they enjoy it, joy fills your heart. How much more your heavenly father again and again and again saying, ask me. I delight in your asking again. Don't forget who God is. Don't worry. If you ask for something that's bad for you, he'll say no. Right? He'll always say no, but he delights in your asking. So that's the first thing we ask is for provision. Next thing we see, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we, have, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. What's the second thing we ask for is forgiveness. Now, don't misunderstand this. 
Remember the context. These are children of God praying this. This is not a prayer of salvation. This isn't a conversion-like asking. These are children, the people already in the kingdom who are asking their father for forgiveness. Those who know they're poor in spirit, as we saw in the Beatitudes. Those who know they are sinners saved by a gracious uh, Savior. Those who know that they are in constant need of forgiveness, that they're still constantly stumbling through this life, and they must rely on a merciful God. So they ask for forgiveness, and the Father forgives. Notice you you tell God, forgive me. It's not even really an an asking, telling God, forgive me, because you know he will. So the question is, why do we need to do this? If we are a Christian, if we've repented, why do we need to continually ask for forgiveness? And again, we go back to where we started. You're made for this communion with God. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, killing sin. And he explicitly, his his motivation is Christians killing sin don't need to kill sin because it might unsave them, right? You might lose your salvation or anything like that. What sin will do, though, is kill your communion, the thing that God has brought you into. How are you going to be filled with affections only for him if you're filling your heart with false affections for sin? How are you going to, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, how are you going to enjoy God at the holiday at the sea if you're busy in the slums playing with mud pies, right? So John Owen says, kill sin because sin will go after your communion with God. And that's the exact motivation behind this prayer. A child of God is praying for forgiveness for the hopes of restoration, for the hopes of fellowship with their God. Father, forgive my rebellion. I don't want to love these things. I want my heart to be rewired where it bears the fruit of the Spirit, that my affections are only for you, that I would gladly reject these things, that I would grow in my hatred of sin because it takes my eyes off of you. And again, God hears, forgives, and does restore communion. And so we pray that, and then we also say, as we forgive our debtors, right? Those that have sinned against us. We'll, we'll talk about this more in just a second, but there's this sense in which when you see how forgiven you are, you naturally would forgive anybody that you would have anything against. Because when you see the infinite debt sheets you've occurred, you would gladly forgive those who uh, have sinned against you. But we'll talk about that in just a second. Last thing. So final petition Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what's the last thing we ask for? We ask for provision, we ask for forgiveness, and the last thing we ask for is protection, specifically protection in a wicked, evil world. So just to clarify, there's a way in which verse 13 often makes us think, are we asking God not to lead us into temptation like he would lead us into Temptation, right? God would purposefully lead us towards sin, which we know if you, you know, if you read James, James very explicitly, God tempts no one, right? Uh, it's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is in the same way you're dependent on God for your daily bread, in the same way you're dependent on him for your daily provision, you are also dependent on him for your daily protection in a wicked world. You have a world filled with evil. It's a broken world. We're still this side of eternity. All things have not been made new yet. Every tear has not been wiped away yet. We long for that day when Jesus returns. We're not there yet. That's why we pray, come, Lord, quickly, right? We still live in this broken world. We still live in the flesh. 
We still have hearts that do long for sin, that are bent towards sin. And so there's a sense in which we need a daily protection from our wicked hearts and from a wicked world. Don't let me be tempted by sin that is crouching at the door and its desire is for me. Don't let me be, uh, don't let me succumb to the evil one as he prowls around like a roaring lion. Don't neglect this prayer. In the same way that our kind of full pantries make us neglect daily provision, I think often we just kind of roll out of bed, think we're good, and then we just kind of go about our day and we'll say a couple prayers and we often don't realize the world that we live in. We don't realize the reality of how much sin hates you and wants to kill you and how uh, just the spiritual reality of the, the, the forces of temptation that long for you to turn your eyes away. And here Jesus says, don't live in this fantasy world. Realize the broken world you live in and pray for the good shepherd to protect you with his rod and his staff. Pray for protection. Pray for deliverance. So uh, that is where the Lord's Prayer ends. Many of you, if you have a King James Bible, uh, it should say, you know, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We all know uh, that verse. If you have an ESV or a more modern translation, that's not in there. That's almost certainly a later edition, so it's not uh, in the Scriptures. However, if you are memorizing the Lord's Prayer or something like that and you want to pray that, that's not a bad thing to pray. Those are all great, true theological things. Uh, so when I pray that uh, in my quiet times, I, I pray that unbiblical part, right? I want his kingdom and his power and his glory to be forever, right? Those are good things to pray, uh, but not in the scriptures. So notice what Jesus is doing here, giving you this pattern of prayer. Jesus is not saying when you pray, you must pray these exact words uh, or else you're unbiblical. Rather, he's given you, again, just as a, as a good teacher, you don't know where to start, start here. And look at the actual pattern. Start with your ultimate, God's ultimate goal. Where is history going? His glory. Why do we exist? His glory, his kingdom, his mission, perfect obedience to him. Then, as your eyes are lifted up to what God is doing in time and history and the universe and all of eternity, then let your eyes turn to yourself and ask your good, loving Father for your needs. But see that order. Let your personal needs flow from why you exist, glorifying him, making his name great in all the earth, and then ask for daily bread. So there's the pattern of prayer, heart of prayer, pattern of prayer, and then lastly, the forgiven prayer. These two last verses that seem to be a little out of place. We'll talk about this. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So it seems a little random. Are we not talking about prayer anymore? What's going on here? It almost seems like Jesus is saying, you don't forgive people, you lose your salvation. Right? God will revoke uh, forgiveness that he has been given to you. If that is what he's saying, that would be really, really random and very out of place. That is, that is not what he's saying. Again, to understand verses that are weird, first step you should always do in interpreting the scriptures is just remember the context. Remember what we're talking about, the context that you're in. So what is the context of this passage? Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. Pray like a child of God. And a child of God knows, I can only pray in the first place because I've been forgiven. 
I can only call God Father because the sin that has kept me away from him, that has kicked me out of his presence, has been forgiven. And so you, as a forgiven child, should walk in this sort of joyous humility that knows, uh, but, uh, you know, except for the intervention of an infinitely merciful God, I'm a hypocrite. I don't know how I'm saved. I don't know why he did this, right? What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man, what is little old me who's done nothing but rebel against you that you would save me? And you kind of come to this laughable awe moment. Every child of God should be there when someone says, how did you become a Christian? Your answer should not be prayed a prayer, went to Bible school or what, you know, your list of good things. It should be, I don't know. I mean, God out of his infinite mercy saved me. That must be how you view yourself, this sort of joyous humility that says, he's infinitely gracious. I had a debt sheet against him that was infinitely long, and he forgave it. And so Jesus is saying, someone who knows that, a child of God, would never look at somebody else and say, but I withhold forgiveness from you. And if they did, they might have misunderstood the gospel. If you do look at others and say, I'm worthy of forgiveness, but you're not, there might be some massive, massive misunderstandings happening in your heart. Because a child of God knows he has been forgiven an infinite, infinite amount, and therefore he can never hold, withhold forgiveness from anyone else. In fact, more than that, a child of God knows, I can even pray. I can even approach God and call him Father because of my forgiveness. In particular, because of the one teaching me how to pray. Because the Savior on the mount who's teaching us how to pray, who's telling us that we can call God Father, he is going to go to the cross so that we can be forgiven. All of the infinite realities that we've talked about today are only possible because of Jesus, because of the one teaching us how to pray, because the only one who could actually call God Father and be saying a true statement in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's never been a moment where the Son has not joyously called the Father, Father, and been saying a true thing because the eternal son came down and he took on the punishment for our hypocrisy because he goes to the cross and he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? We can now cry out, Father, I know you love me and I know that you will never forsake me. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we don't just get to say God, we get to say our Father. As one pastor put it, we were kicked out of the garden. Our our fundamental problem is that we were kicked out of his presence. Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day. That's what we were made for, fellowship with him. But sin gets in the way of that, and they were kicked out of the garden. And not just kicked out, God puts an angel with a fiery sword going every which way to guard the way back into God's presence. There's no way for us to get back in. Can't go around, we can't go through, or else the sword will come down on us. So how can fellowship with him be restored. Jesus Christ goes under the sword himself so that you and I can step back into his presence, not just as a forgiven sinner, but as a son and a daughter. So hear me, church. 
Go pray to your Father who is in secret. Go pray. Wake up 30 minutes early. You can do that. Wake up an hour early. Maybe you can do that. And get some coffee. Have it all ready. You know, I've got, you just press the button, set it. You know, there's new machines where you can, like, set the time. Wake up, have your clothes laid out, drink the coffee, and go to your Father who is in secret and let him reward you. Just drink in the glorious realities of the gospel. Hear your Father telling you, come, receive, commune with me, and drink deeply of his infinite reward in the secret place. Bask in his beams. Taste and see the sweetness of his Son, your Savior, and let him fill your heart with his sweet, comforting spirit. Go to your Father who is in secret so that even when you leave the secret place and you go out into the world, you never leave communion with him. Let him transform you to where that is the actual core of your being. You have fellowship with the living God who delights in you coming and asking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are just, again, lifting up your word and with it lifting up incredible, unthinkable things that you have done in spite of us. Uh, We contributed nothing to this except the sin that made it necessary, and so we praise you for who you are, and now we know that the difficulty is us just grasping it. We know Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, and that's the wrestle, this side of eternity, is that we have these truths that you said of who you are and what, what is the actual realities of the gospel, yet we have eyes that see dimly. We have things that grab our attention and things that our hearts long for more than you. And we have, uh, you know, just busy tasks. We've got to go to work and do spreadsheets and other stuff that it's hard to just commune with you in the midst of just daily tasks. Yet you are beckoning us to know you and love you. You've never taken your eyes off us for a second. And so I pray that you would but lift our eyes to you, that we would leave the slums, put down the mud pies, and enjoy our God at the holiday at the sea because that's what you've drawn us in for and that you would make your name glorious through us, that there would be a a strangeness in a dark world uh, of your children, that the people of the kingdom would be very obviously people of the kingdom that aren't affected by the fears of the world as the rest of the world are because we have a living hope and a living God that we draw our life from, that in you we live and we move And we have our being, and I pray that you would just do that. Again, in the same way you had to save us, you have to sanctify us. And so I pray that you would sanctify our hearts by your Spirit. pray that in your Son's beautiful name, in Jesus' name, amen.